0: Oh, man, it's good to be home. It is, it is so good to be home. For, for those of you that don't know me, I see a lot of familiar faces. I see a lot of faces I don't know. Uh, but for those of you that don't know me, my, my name is Justin. I, I currently serve as the lead pastor of Cross Point Coast, Palm Bay. Um, and it's just such a gift to be here with you. For, the, for, for seven years, uh, my family and I were part of this congregation and uh, d- did everything from visitor to regular participant to member to deacon to staff to intern. I mean, I, we've done it all. And so we have grown up here. I, I say we uh, because, I mean, my family and I really have, have, grown, have grown up here. All three of my children were dedicated here. I mean, it's, it's just good to be home. And so uh, now that I got that out of the way, are you ready to study your Bibles this morning? Some of y'all forgot that with me, you can talk back. Let, let your inner Pentecostal flow, all right? Some of y'all knew people like, mm-mm, I don't like him already. Loosen up, it's gonna be fun, okay? Wait till I start yelling at you. Oh man, if you could turn with me to Proverbs 3, and then you probably wanna keep your finger or your phone quick with your thumb to Proverbs 6. We're going to be jumping around uh, just a little bit. Uh, at, at our church, we're doing this series as well Fight for Joy. And we're using the same framework of, of understanding root sins and patterns of sin in our life and how to walk in victory, uh, Christ's victory over the patterns of sin in our lives. But for us, Proverbs is the primary focus of our teaching, selected Proverbs. And so I just want you to get ready for that. So as you uh, are kind of getting your fingers sort of holding uh, Proverbs 3 and Proverbs 6, I want to sort of do some work to frame up our time together because the way we've done it at Palm Bay is is just slightly different to, to how you guys have sort of Framed up your time here. And so I'm going to ask for a sizable amount of grace here in the the front end for ideas or thoughts that maybe won't get conveyed fully. So I'm just going to ask for your grace there. But it is in God's wonderful timing that we are in this series, Fight for Joy. and, And something we need to understand here at the front, we need to understand this, or else the rest of our time together doesn't make sense. And the rest of your time in this series, doesn't make sense is that this fight is not a battle over morality. You understand that? Every day you wake up, you are not entering the crucible of being a good person. Every day you wake up and every minute you spend alive is a fight for your affections a fight for your desires, a fight for your joy. And see, the fight for joy has morality at the result and not the object of the fight. If I can make my case, we look to Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 7, which read, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, And he will make straight your path. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Do you see it already? Do you you see it already in the language of the proverb? Do you see trust in the Lord? The Hebrew there is saying this is a person who throws all of themselves totally on God. This is a person who's positioned their affections towards God's glory. This is a person who doesn't trust within their own ability to achieve a straight path. This is a person who lives in constant relationship with God. That's what the Hebrew for, in all your ways acknowledge Him, means. And so it's saying, throw yourself. Literally, don't lean on. Don't incline on. Don't recline on. No, throw all of yourself on to the Lord. All of your affections, all of your thinking, your surrendered will, throw it on Him and He will make straight your path. The proverb isn't trust in the Lord and make straight your path. Too often, discipleship in the church, conversations around Christian living are centered around moral fortitude. But that's not to say that we have a license to go outside and be nasty. No, it's actually quite the opposite. The reality is that God is not tolerant of our sin, that God is not pleased with our sin. And it is, God, it is not God's intention that you nor I remain in our sinfulness. No, God wants us to walk in joy. As your brother in Christ, believe me when I say that I want your joy to be complete in Jesus. Then the question must be asked, if you're following me logically, right? The question must be asked, so then what is joy to the Christian? What is joy to the Christian? This ain't a question of salvation, that's another problem we can develop. We love the gospel so much, but we have little to no understanding or comprehension of what the gospel means for us on the other side of salvation. I'll get it, amen all by myself. This question, what is, it, what is joy for the Christian, is not a question of salvation. I hope that if you are not in the faith, this morning, if you're sort of wrestling, leaning, then you would listen to the petition I'll make for you. But right now, I need to make clear that the question I'm asking is not a salvific question, whether you're in or out. No. Now that we are on the other side of salvation, what is joy, true joy to the Christian. Jesus says in John 15, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. True joy is found in Jesus and keeping his commands. Obedience, right? But if you still think this is a question of morality, then you've missed it, right? Like Justin, you just told me to keep his commands. That's not, that's not the heart of the question. That's not the heart of the, sa- of the statement. You're only so obedient to what you fear. You could wake up. You're only so obedient to the object of your fear. I think Steve shared the, the illustration of reading a book and having a cockroach on the sofa next to you. Nobody goes back to reading the book. Oh man, if you go back to reading the book, you a different kind of animal. (laughs) I don't know the salvation for you. (laughs) If you see a kangaroo sitting next to you on the sofa and you just (laughs) go, that's a problem. That's a problem. But the idea is that when you see the roach, everything that you do after seeing the roach is informed by your fear of that thing there next to you, right? You get up and you look for it. You kill it and then you clean and you clean a lot, right? You don't go back to reading the book. You are only so obedient to what is the object of your fear. See, sin has you at the center of your affections and fears. Sin is all about you. But fearing God, what I mean by that is beholding his holiness keeps him at the center of your life and keeps your eyes gazed upon him. Remember the proverb, fear the Lord, acknowledge him always, and he'll make straight your path. You see that? Not having a right fear of the Lord causes us to keep ourselves at the center, and thus sin robs our affections for Jesus and keeping his command. It is essentially a lack of wisdom that keeps us at the center of our lives. This is why God has given us this beautiful book of sayings and promises. This is why God has given us the Proverbs to help keep our fear in place, our trust secure, our wisdom, of our, our, our God's wisdom as the foundation of Christian living. Proverbs 9 shows us this clearly. The proverb uh, talks to us about the way of wisdom and the way of folly. But see, folly in Proverbs 9 is described as a beautiful temptress. It actually gives her a personage, lady folly, it says. Lady Folly stands in front of her home, and she calls out to those whose paths are made straight. You should read it. It's good. But she calls out to those whose paths are made straight, enticing them to come into her home, and her home is full of corpses. Lady Folly is an image, a figure of our flesh. Our flesh tempts us with sin, promises us things it cannot give us, and yet we cash those fake checks expecting prosperity in return, and what we get is death. And we do this constantly. It is a pattern in our lives. In this series, we ask the question, How do we walk in Christ's victory over the patterns of sin in our lives? Over seven very specific root sins each week, putting under the microscope, if you will, each one so that we can throw ourselves wholly on God and say, I have my pride, I have my sloth, I have my greed and my lust, my envy and my wrath, my gluttony, so that our mighty Father in heaven might deliver us. So would you look to Proverbs 6 as my assignment to you this morning is to examine the folly of laziness or slothfulness. I want to give you three types, three heads of this sloth this morning. So let's read God's word and then would you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from God this morning. Proverbs 6, starting in verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Holy and righteous God, we ask you again to sustain us this morning. There are many good things that we've experienced already this morning, and many are good things that we have probably already missed, things that we probably feel are owed to us, but really are yours that you give us in kindness. God, you woke us up this morning. You made the sun shine on our face. You gave us children and parents to help us, for us to train. You got us here safely. For so God, we thank you for these small actions of grace, these small letters of love. God, would you gift me, the preacher, with clarity of speech and thought? Or would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors? In Christ Jesus' name, amen. R.C. Sproul says, Time is the great equalizer. It is the only thing that everyone receives equally. The clock plays no favorites. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? It doesn't matter if you're married or single. It doesn't matter if you got human babies or fur babies. It doesn't matter what your race is or what kind of job you got. We all get the same amount of time a day, 1,440 minutes. I can assure you that I have wasted many more of these minutes than I have put them to good use. And I can confess to you even that the one place my wife has gifted me, blessed me more times than I can count, is a conversation about my wasted time. And so I want you to be confident that as you hear me this morning, that when I talk about a lazy person, I am the chief among you. I'm the worst is what I'm saying. Like in all things in this world, time is God's. God created it, and so it is His. Can't you see how loving that is? Can't you see how, not the concept of time like like on a clock, but actual space and time? Isn't Isn't that loving? In that loving of God to gift his children with time. That's love. And in his love, determining what is good and perfect for us gives us limits to this time. You have 24 hours, and that's it. That is love. God has determined what goodness and perfection would be in his administered gift of time. It is because of the love that God has for you that you have time on your hands at all. Because limited time here on earth is a small, very small reminder of the eternal time and glory in heaven. The limited time that you have here on earth for the Christian is a snapshot, just a taste of infinite time in glory with God. Infinite time with God in the new Jerusalem, but this finite time is finite. It is limited, perfect as God made it to be. And in God's extended kindness, he creates his children to be stewards of his things. You have responsibilities and roles that you are called to while you are here. Gardens that you are called by God to tend, if I could. They have been lent to you so that you can nurture them to care for for his glory and your joy joy is found in the bad days and good days because we know that true joy is living every moment in light of the one who time does not bind God is not bound by it. Since he made it, it cannot shape his days. It cannot motivate his ways. It cannot master him. Joy is held tightly when our days are lived faithfully to the one who holds our time. Amen. To waste time is to spend that time on something that has no value. And here's the thing. The time that you waste is real. It's not imaginative because it belongs to someone. And that someone isn't you. Laziness is a time thief. Laziness is an assumption that you have more of what is not promised to you, and that is time. Laziness, slothfulness is an entitlement to that which doesn't belong to you. Laziness has soul-destroying capabilities that lacks compassion for others. See, laziness seeks to rob God of his time and doesn't love others well at all. For those walking the straight path of Proverbs 3, laziness entices you with self-gratifying seduction tactics. But when you enter her home, all of her residents are dead. Laziness testifies to others that your God is yourself. It is not a quality that is compatible with fellowship or brotherhood or sisterhood. It does not serve anyone well. Proverbs ten twenty six says, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. See, I don't know about vinegar in the teeth. That's weird. But I know about smoke in the eyes. Some of you do too, right? Some of my students, when I was a student pastor here, we would have these campouts, right? Or or not really campouts, we would do these fire pits and we would worship around the fire pit and it never failed that the wind would blow and get smoke in somebody's eyes. And so you're irritated, your eyes are like hurting, they burn, you're just itching and kind of just going at them. Your eyes are all watery. You see, laziness, that's what laziness does to the corporate gathering. It distracts, it doesn't contribute It annoys and it causes pain. It assumes the grace of God on... It assumes that you will receive the grace of God and the grace of others. It assumes that you'll still get these things even after you abuse them. Are you hearing me this morning? Laziness looks simple. In your mind right now, you have a picture of laziness. You, you have a picture of what you think laziness is, right? It looks like someone who plays too much video games. It looks like somebody at work. It looks like someone, it looks like your children probably. Some of y'all laugh, yeah, I heard that. It looks like sayings that you, you probably say. You know, don't say for tomorrow what you can do today. I can tell you that as a brown skinned brother growing up in America, laziness gets assumed upon you. You have to work extra hard just to not be seen as lazy. But whatever laziness looks like to you, whatever you have in your mind's eye that preaches to you what laziness is, it's simple. I want to tell you that it's actually much more complex than that. It is much more complex than that. This sloth has three heads. You can be thankful for the image of a three-headed sloth. You're welcome. My hope this morning is that God would grant you the wisdom to see where we can all repent from our affections towards being lazy and run toward God and have joy. I want to also steer you away from the idea that you and I are going to fit neatly into one of these heads, one of these types, and that will solely define our slothfulness or laziness. No, this is a framework to help you understand that at the root of the many sins of laziness you and I participate in, we are guilty of all of them. Not one of these types. All of them. You were lazy. I am lazy, period. So the first head of the sloth is the sluggard. The first kind of product laziness creates is the sluggard. It is the most common personhood of laziness. There's nothing beautiful about a slug. There's nothing. If you think so, I'm on the pulpit right now. You're down there. I'm telling you, you're wrong. (laughs) Slugs are disgusting, which is why we get this word, sluggard. To be a sluggard literally means to be habitually lazy, Which is not real help because laziness looks different in many spaces. But for the sake of understanding, the sluggard in Scripture is considered to be an idle person. The person who doesn't move or moves slow to do important things. Look at the text. This is wisdom for the idle. The sluggard is to look to the ant. The ant has no need to be prodded and reminded to do its work in time. No, the sluggard oversleeps regularly. The sluggards, they're masters of their own comforts. He's idle and apathetic. The irony here is that the sluggard actually works incredibly hard. He works very hard. See, to give in to your own inclination to be lazy takes practice it takes practice. To not do takes willpower and practice. And the more you practice it, the more deceitful you'll be about it. The more manipulative you become about keeping your environment intact. The sluggard is full of excuses always having a reason why the things that should have been done are not done. Proverbs 22 verse 13, the sluggard said, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. See, the sluggard is anxious and not focused. The eyes of the sluggard are not on the things that God has given them to do, to work at, to be diligent and faithful and fruitful at, but rather their eyes are on the many things outside that would potentially bring them harm. Or they are pulled away by the many interests they have. To do God's work is secondary to my entertainment and leisure. Why? Because the sluggard's God is not God. It is its own self. And it worships itself with leisure. Comfort. These are things that dull your senses. Amusement gets old. No, I'm tired of some parts of Disney. Epcot is boring. <laughs> Epcot's boring. That's not a debate. There ain't nothing to do there. And you ain't paid all that money to get there. And you spend all that time being there. Amusement gets old. The sluggard is sort of a celebrated part of American life too, no? You work hard for 25 years and then you, you kick back for the rest of your life. But for the Christian, this is sinful because it assumes that Titus 2 is not a garden you're called to tend Older women disciple the younger women. Older men disciple the younger men. See, the sluggard does not respond like Paul who says, I exist to be spent. The sluggard uses the good things to not do the hard things. An excuse I've heard many times as a young Christian in the faith by many of men older than me that I've looked up to was that they were too busy for my coaching, that they were too busy for me to sit under them. They had family things they needed to do. As if I would not benefit from witnessing those moments of that life. As if my future wife and my future children at the time would not benefit from me observing an older man. and Observing an older man be a husband. Be a father. Work hard. You see, we take good things and we make them excuses to not do the hard things. As though witnessing those things would not minister to me and save me from the pitfalls of sinfulness. Derek Kidner in his commentary on Proverbs says this, The wise man will learn while there is still time. He knows that the sluggard is no freak, but as often as not, an ordinary man who made too many excuses, too many refusals, and too many postponements. Due to the fall, lady folly tempts us with laziness. The sluggard is probably the most common picture of laziness that you can think of when it's said out loud. The one who who doesn't work, excuse me. But see, work is is not a product of the fall. Humanity was actually made to work. The fall didn't introduce work. It changed the way work hits us. And that's where the sluggard is born. Controlling the content of its work so that it can escape the consequences of working hard. The sluggard not only works for the wrong thing, but he works for the wrong reasons. There's another type of laziness, the person who works and works and works and works and works, the lazy, busy, the workaholic. Busyness gives you no immunity from laziness. You could recognize the sins of neglect and procrastination, overindulgence, abuse of rest, and still not recognize the total gambit of laziness. The workaholic is busy, busy taking care of to-do lists filled with secondary things of importance. A lot of us here have many things the Lord has gifted us the responsibility to work in. However, there may be some things on your plate right now, that, God, that was not God's design for you to have right now. Not every opportunity is the right opportunity for the season. Busyness does not equal diligence. Busyness does not equal faithfulness. Busyness does not equal fruitfulness. In the madness of our lives, busyness makes you forget that you have a soul that needs tending to. I heard a quote once that said, um, busyness has killed more Christians than bullets do. I'll let you sit with that. But then how, how can we know? How can we know? How can we see what lazy busy is? And there is, in my opinion, no greater teachers of this lesson right here than two wonderful women of God, Martha and Mary. If you're quick, go to Luke 10, verse 38. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Martha has chosen the good portion. Which will not be taken away from her. Jesus says one thing is necessary. One Thing is necessary. Time with me. If you have no time, if you have no time to have unhurried time with God, then your busyness is sinful. You hear me? And this assumes that you already have unhurried time time with your family and the other peoples you are accountable for. There are priorities and secondary things. Your soul, your family's soul, the people in your church, I'll argue this, those are the gardens that God, that the God of time has called you to tend. Workaholics use labor to center themselves around themselves. Your goals, your accomplishments, your accolades, that is not what God has given us work for. Our work, even in the secular world, our work does not have the same perspective as the secular do. Our secular work and our Christian work, for those of you that live in both, is to the glory of God and the benefit of others. Everything else is sinful. To give your life to the grind To busy yourself with things doesn't constitute diligence. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty only comes to poverty. In the Hebrew writing, the poverty here is not a financial poverty. It's a snare of death, a poverty of the soul. Busyness is laziness because when you're too busy to steward correctly, you're not stewarding faithfully. You don't have time to love your spouse well. You don't have time to raise up your children well. And hear me, I'm saying the hard work of soul-tending, raising up your children, not providing entertainment for the soul-tending and soul-nurturing raising up of our children. You don't have time to tend to the church. You don't have time to make it to the Bible study or the book study or to make it to community group or to make it to service on Sunday. Workaholics like the sluggards put their self in place of God at the center of their lives and neither lives to love, neither lives to worship, and yet there is a third person that laziness creates, the zombie. The zombie is a desireless person. It's a laziness that steals from stewardship. They may live a busy life, but it's a life of just enough was done to get back to enjoying comfort. Responsibilities are taken care of, but honestly, it's only for presentation's sake. The zombie performs so it can get what it craves, comfort. The zombie sleepwalks all week and lives on the weekends. The zombie lives in a, like a constant state of autopilot, hardly notices anything around them. They let things run their course so that they can get through with their lives. People who wake up, work what they have to, do only what is required and not what is excellent, come home, do whatever duty needs to be done there with one thing on their minds, the sofa. This is a deadly laziness. As one commentator puts it, the zombie is trying to preserve personal comforts through the candy of endless amusements. Sloth is a chronic quest for worldly comfort that compounds boredom, boredom with God, boredom with people, boredom with life. Zombies' things of first importance are its own interests. It has lost the desire to love and lost the taste for what is truly satisfying. It comes to church, but it's not really here. Not really paying attention to the proclamation of the salvific bomb that can revive its heart. No, it sits in the chairs in opposition to the preacher's words, looking for triggering buzzwords and phrases. It does not come to hear from God, but rather what it expects to hear from God. It has no peace. It comes to church hungry, but instead of everlasting bread, it comes to the Lord's table with the next big game on its mind. It is focused on what the world offers. The zombie has moved into Lady Folly's, Lady Folly's home and made residence among the dead there. I want to remind you, family, That though there are three persons to laziness, you and I have the sinful fruit of all three of them. The sluggard idolizing free time, the workaholic seeking self-constructed self-worth, and the zombie who sleepwalks through life. Like all three, we have removed God from the center of our lives and have eaten of the fruit of our own sinfulness. All three have set aside the joy that God has set before them and traded it for temporary, non-lasting joy. God does not like the sloth. The slothful takes the good things that God has given to us for our flourishing and twists it in the name of their own gain. Family, look to God. God is not lazy. God is not lazy. He does not work so that we can be free from diligent, faithful stewardship. It is his kindness that work is an intention from humanity from the start. It is not a product of the fall. Work did not enter in with sin. Sin made work and lack of work sinful. God is in the business of comfort. But being comforted by God is not the same thing as working yourself to be comfortable. There is no faithful saint in heaven who said confidently that God delivered them from their sins so that they can be comfortable on their couch. We have not been designed to live in a state of perpetual vacation. Family, there is hope for the sloth this morning. There is hope for you and I yet. There is one who did all the work that we so that we wouldn't have to live with work as our God. There is one who worked hard to comfort us in his righteousness that doesn't result in our comfort. When all was bleak in the garden and when sin entered the world and the cosmos was fractured, God went to work. I'm reading the Chronicles of Narnia with my children, right? We just got to Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Actually, we just finished it, and so we watched the movie. There's a scene in this movie that, I mean, the whole movie preaches, but there was a a particular scene that really did preach to me. If you don't know about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I'm going to give you a small little snapshot that doesn't do it any justice and is filled with spoilers. Um, Narnia is a magical place that these four children just happened to enter in on accident. It's snowing and it's cold. And as one of the inhabitants there tells them, it's always winter and never Christmas. In this world, the witch Jadis rules and she is wicked. She is the reason for the cold. She is the reason why there is a fear among the inhabitants and creatures there. But at the dinner table with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they explain to the kids that though it is always cold and though there is fear and though there is discomfort, they have hope. Mr. Beaver says Aslan is on the move. Oh, church. When Adam and Eve sinned, God was on the move. He sacrificed an animal to provide them clothing. When the sinfulness of this world was just too much to bear, God was on the move. And he sent his son to die in his enemy's place so that the enemies can now become family. Ah, church, there is hope for the sloth. Our sinfulness demands our death. But God would not let that stand and sent Jesus to come to work. Work on our behalf, living perfectly, keeping the the law rightly, loving his neighbors mercifully so that you and I can be privileged to do the same. Whether you're a sluggard, a workaholic, or a zombie, there is room for you at the cross. God can redeem you and you are not without hope. Ask God to search your heart, examine yourself prayerfully and rigorously and find these places you have believed the empty lies of comfort this world promised. Promises, but can't deliver and repent from your idolatry. Confess your laziness and live, live beholding the holiness of God so that your joy may be full and you have freedom to keep his commands. Stand with me in worship.